Welcome back to Call Time with Katie Bierenbaum. Thanks everyone for bearing with my week off while I was in finals hell. We shall see if I ever recover from my counting exam, but it is exciting because now I can actually read and interpret financial information. So it's all gonna be worth it, all the stern classes. So slightly apropos of that, I have an amazing guest on the show today with whom I've been wanting to chat for months. And we finally got the time that both worked for us. I say it's apropos because she is one of my favorite professors this semester at NYU Stern, the wonderful Professor Jones. Welcome. How are you doing today? I am hanging in there. First of all, thank you for that incredible introduction. Uh, That's very kind of you. And I know we've had a few challenges trying to organize our talk but here we are, thank goodness, and we're ready to rock and roll. And as you mentioned, you finished one final. I have finals to give. So at this point of the semester, it is fast and furious because you know the students are trying to turn in their uh, last minute assignments and we're getting ready for finals and everyone everyone wants to you know dot the last i and cross the last t before everybody gets away for break so it's a pretty challenging time right now to be quite honest but it's all good i mean it happens each and every semester and we get through it each and every semester so yeah. this is a break yes. from the routine. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be a, a reprieve from, from the rest of the work. And I see that you're in your office, I think, in Stern. So I appreciate you taking the time even while at work. So I wanted to bring Professor Jones on because the class I took with her was called Women in Business Leadership. You may be listening and wondering what could that possibly have to do with theater? This is a podcast that's supposedly about theater and entertainment, but I'm here to assure you it has a lot more to do, those two subjects have a lot more to do with each other than you would think. You may think of the theater and the broader entertainment world as a female dominated business. And in some cases that's true, especially at lower levels of these organizations. But when it comes to the upper echelons, it's really not true. Based on a recent study released by the League of Professional Theater Women, women make up only 33% of directors in the industry, 80% of the artistic directors, for the best nonprofit theaters in the country are male and 74, 74% of the executive directors are male. You can imagine these statistics are even worse for women of color in the industry. And this is globally true. The Guardian's collaboration with Elizabeth Freestone in the UK revealed that across the UK, across all parts of the theater industry, there are men outrepresent women two to one. And there's so much more to say on the subject, and we're going to get into all of that. But I first wanted to address why bringing, bringing Professor Jones on the show is so relevant beyond that she's just great to talk to. So getting that out of the way, I now want to do a little background on you, but please correct me if I'm wrong about anything, because this is stuff I just gathered from, you know, your bios, various places and LinkedIn. So Professor Jones got her doctorate at Ohio University in theories of executive leadership, gender and leadership and conflict management in organizations. She's since worked as a professor of management at Clark Atlanta University and now at NYU Stern. Her research has been published in the Journal of Small Business Management, the Journal of Business and Entrepreneurship, the Women in Management Review, and the Journal of International Business Disciplines. 
Finally, she's also certified in dispute resolution with expertise specifically in academic and cross-cultural mediations. So is there anything I'm leaving out that's major? Well, one other thing is I've worked several years with the National Association for Women in Technology, and uh, I worked with them for, and still do, work with them for several years in the area of trying to move the needle on underrepresentation of women in STEM. And this was very exciting work and has changed and morphed over the years, but the foundational work remains the same in that I work with universities, typically computer science departments. And with computer science departments, I work with the faculty and administrators in trying to understand the dynamics of the department and then trying to identify strategic recruitment and retention practices that would help to improve the experience for women in computer science. And again, with the goal of increasing the number of women earning degrees in computer science. So yeah, that's one other thing that I've been doing. Yeah, so been doing that for quite some time and that too has just been phenomenal and the other that is I am one of I think I came in and there were maybe 15 consultants all women all PhDs from different backgrounds actually I was the only one from the business world and so it that has just been very very enriching and very enlightening because again we all have different uh perspectives so uh, yeah, the National Center for Women in Technology has been instrumental in assisting me in doing this work in different spaces. So that's been really, really, really rewarding. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So I want to take it back sort of to the beginning, and I do this with almost all of my guests on the podcast. How did you get interested in this research to begin with? What did the gender studies aspect come first or did the business aspect come first or is it a sort of chicken egg situation? No, many moons ago, I taught a class when I was still a doctoral student and I taught a class in women in leadership. Now, again, as a doctoral student, you know, the focus was let me get some expertise, let me get some experience teaching. And it was a topic that hadn't been taught and the dean at the time said, hey, you know, is this something you might be interested in? So, of course, as a hungry graduate student, I am excited about the topic and I just fell for it. It just grabbed me and I was hooked. So I've been able to tweak it in terms of the focus. And so at that point, it was more generalized in terms of foundational theories about gender. And uh, then we look at different contexts. But now my focus primarily explores women in business organizations and female entrepreneurs. So it's just been refined over the years uh, in terms of the research focus. Yeah, I was going to ask if it's, it feels to me that certainly people have been studying business and entrepreneurship for years and people have been studying gender inequalities for probably not as long, but also for some number of years. But it seems slightly recent that these two topics have been like combined together. Would you say that that was in the span of your career or are you coming in a coming in at a long line of people researching this topic? No, there's always been an interest in the area. 
but it probably hadn't been as publicized as it is now. And then as the field continued to grow and develop, you had many more women looking at gender issues and inequality in business organizations. So it just continued to mushroom and grow. And it now encompasses, you know, practically, you know, all areas of business. And it's just a matter of having an interest in that discipline in terms of thinking about women's participation, women's roles, women's experiences within the business landscape. So it still has, you know, lots of opportunity to grow and there's, you know, tons of research that uh, needs to be conducted from various vantage points. Again, we start looking at female entrepreneurs and you just look at women uh, in the workplace and that takes on quite a few complexities in terms of, uh, is there an interest in looking at women overall and their experience in the workplace? Is there an interest in looking at uh, female managers? in the workplace? Is there an interest in looking at executive women in the workplace? So, I mean, there are a variety of areas that can use additional research. And I think it's gaining in momentum and gaining in steam in terms of it being an area of interest for professors. Definitely. I imagine we're going to be covering in this discussion, a lot of stuff we've discussed in class. So just bear with me on this. But the first of which I want to ask you, based on your research or even anecdotal experience, what do you see as the biggest obstacles facing women in the workplace today? Well, I think, I mean, there are a variety of obstacles, right? But one one of the key elements is the structural challenges in terms of organizations and how organizations have not changed very much over a span of, you know, 100 years or so, 110 or 15 years, depending on, you know, how old an organization is. And so organizational cultures have not evolved very much to keep up with how we are evolving as a society. And so I believe as a result of that, it creates or has the ability to create impediments and challenges that can affect women and their experience in organizations. So, so, so you've got that piece of it in terms of the culture, right? And then you also have kind of the societal issues in terms of attitudes and perceptions and stereotypes associated with women and the appropriate uh, roles that a woman should uh, engage in, particularly in business. So that's a whole nother basket in and of itself. Uh, So that's a challenge. And do you imagine, based on your research, that these are super different in different industries or even within different industries in different organizations, since you seem to be connecting it a lot to historical culture within the organization? Like, do you think some industries are ahead of others? That's a good question, because there are definitely uh, differences when we start to look at things like pay, right? Mm -hmm. And we start thinking about uh, the gender gap. And so when you think about an area like finance, we see that there's a great disparity with respect to pay and finance as compared to some of the other business disciplines. But I think it is really uh, driven by the culture of the organization, which is impacted by organizational leadership, right? So it is 
contingent upon the senior leadership team to be mindful and aware of the challenges that women in particular encounter. And then in some instances, when we start talking about parental issues that all workers encounter, when you start thinking about these challenges, it is incumbent on the senior leadership team to try to figure out how do we respond to these challenges and what does our organizational culture look like? And uh, how are we interfacing with our employees? Are we creating unnecessary obstacles or have we created an environment where people can thrive and do well? So one of the things that we're seeing a little more of here lately would be cultures that are more quote unquote uh, feminine in nature, right? Where there is uh, more of a focus, more of a concern about creating an environment that is um, inclusive, that values people being helpful to one another, that is focused on creating an environment of inclusivity. So this is something that we're beginning to see a little more of. And the first company that comes to mind when we start thinking about this type of of culture would be Bumble, right? And yeah, Bumble is a trailblazer of sorts because it has created this environment where they have a senior leadership team that has a significant number of uh, women leaders at the helm, right? They're focused on intentionally creating environments where all workers, not just women, but all workers can thrive. But it's also fascinating when we look at the numbers because Bumble is predominantly female when we start looking at the number of employees, the types of employees that they have. So I think, you know, that's a new model and something that we're seeing. Definitely that's not the only organization. And I think back to many, many moons ago to uh, a company called Mary Kay Cosmetics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've heard of it. Okay. And so, you know, they were a trailblazer many decades ago because again, the senior leadership team, first of all, was founded by a woman, right? And then you had a senior leadership team that had several women at the helm. And the Mary Kay Ash, the founder, was very cognizant of the challenges and the issues and the, and the obstacles that women face. So as she was growing and building her business, she thought about these issues that she encountered and she thought about how to create an environment where women and men could thrive. But the interesting thing is that early on, Mary Kay had majority women working there. But over the decades, they've also included men. And so, yeah, their challenges uh, were slightly different because they then had to think about, okay, do we have any practices? Do we have any policies in place that handicap men? So the reason I'm mentioning this is that, I mean, we've seen this for decades. And again, Mary Kay was one of the trailblazers, but the key was that focus and that intentionality in terms of the founder creating a firm that would help women to thrive. I have so many thoughts buzzing in my head based on this, one of which being you know, you think about, and you've worked a lot with entrepreneurship, 
and that whole concept. And we've talked a bit in class about how in the last few years of the 2000s, it was definitely sort of a fad or a trend that all these women were starting companies that were like female driven, female companies, sort of the girl boss era. And then that really backfired because a lot of these companies had toxic work environments or turned out to be mostly false in the case of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And a lot of people thought that these stories were a step backwards for women. But that also brings up the question of like, do women need to start their own companies entirely in order to be treated appropriately or paid appropriately in the workplace? So what do you see as like the motivator behind these female-driven companies? Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head, Katie. (laughs) For a lot of women, they have dedicated time and energy and effort in organizations. And they reach a point where they realize, I'm not going to be able to ascend the the hierarchy, right? I'm not gonna be able to ascend the corporate ladder any uh, further. So they've got a choice to make. They can decide, okay, you know, it's been a good run. I've been here, you know, 15, 20 years and I've made some uh, progress and my performance is outstanding. So, you know, this is the end of the line for me. That's one choice. Another choice is to say, okay, well, I put in my time here, but now, let me spread my wings and go elsewhere, right? Especially if I'm interested in continuing to climb uh, the corporate ladder. That's another option that uh, women engage in. And then the third option is to say, hey, you know what? I've been doing this 10, 15, 20 years and I can be just as successful as my employer. So a lot of women upon recognizing that their opportunities are very limited, begin to engage in entrepreneurship, right? Or small business ownership. And oftentimes they also believe that they will have more control uh, over their time only to find out that's not the case, right? That it is a very uh, intense experience in terms of starting a business and getting it up and running. But many of the women research indicates that many of the women report that it's gratifying because on some level, right, they are the the chief decision maker, okay? They are in charge and they have opportunities that they did not have when they were still working in the corporate world. So I think it's a two-pronged approach in terms of thinking about women's ascension. And I think we need both. We definitely need women in corporate America to continue to climb the hierarchy. And we can we need women to continue to occupy a variety of positions because then we get more perspectives and then men also uh, have the opportunity to be exposed to women who are bright, intelligent, articulate, capable. And so that hopefully will help to springboard organizations forward, right? However, by the same token, we need more women, business owners and entrepreneurs, because similarly, women have a very unique perspective 
in terms of products and opportunities. And while not all women focus on women, uh, women's needs and female products, but they are very good at tapping into the needs of that niche because they understand it. Right. But by no way uh, am I suggesting that, you know, you know, women only occupy entrepreneurial and businesses, entrepreneurial endeavors and businesses in the female space. But it's a welcome addition. Hmm. Right. Yeah, totally. So, so it's to answer your question, the long way around it is absolutely. Yeah. Both approaches are essential because it just continues to provide women with opportunities and it also elevates their presence and it also showcases their talent. Mm. And for some people, this is still essential, right? It's, It's still important to see, you know, does she have the chops to do it? Does she have the wherewithal to oversee people? Can she handle the complexities of running a business? So yeah, so both are definitely essential and important. Yeah, we've had this sort of like girl boss era, but also in the past few years, there was the Me Too movement and Trump's election and all of these different factors, the pandemic, of course. In your view, do you think in the last few years that the research on women in business has changed a lot? Do you think women's roles have changed a lot? Do you think women's sort of capacity to be satisfied or not satisfied has changed? What's your view of the last few years in that regard? Oh my gosh, that is an excellent question because the uh, pandemic has just uh, shaken things up incredibly, right? And turned us all upside down and on our heads. And we've all had to pivot in one respect or another with respect to the kind of work that we do, right? And so in organizations, as you well know, uh, companies had to figure out how, how do we get the work done? How do we do it, right? And so teleworking became much more popular and everyone became acquainted with Zoom. And we're on uh, right now, might I add. Exactly. Imagine that, right? And it's so funny. Yeah, I hadn't, after being on Zoom regularly and then, you know, having a bit of a hiatus because going back to face to face instruction, it was incredible when I had to go back to Zoom for a few things, right? I know. And so, oh, yeah, it, it's just amazing because, again, what was once just such a central part of your life and then it, you know, switched gears, but it requires us to be nimble and it requires us to be flexible, right? So for women in particular, the pandemic has created quite a bit of challenges um, for men and women, but primarily for women in that now they're working from home, but guess what? During the pandemic, if they had children, the children were also at home. And now someone has to oversee their schooling, right? Because now everything has, you know, gone online. And so as a result of this challenge, women, I mean, there's good and bad. Women have experienced quite a bit of uh, angst because they have many more demands with respect to work-related roles and familial roles. So yeah, handling everything that's going on or most things that go on in the home, as well as trying to work. 
Now, again, obviously the upside is that for women who continue to have jobs, that was a blessing because they still had additional income. Now, there were, however, some women who were dismissed, right, in the wake of the pandemic. And that was quite a bit of a challenge because, you know, if they did not have a partner, then the issue is, okay, you know, where am I going to, how am I going to survive and where's my income going to come from, right? So that was a situation for some women. Now, the challenging piece was with women uh, who had partners, okay? And now we've got a situation where uh, their kids are learning virtually. And so a decision has to be made or had to be made in terms of, okay, uh, the kids are now in school and they're doing you know, virtual uh, learning, who's going to be there with them, mm-hmm. right? And for many women, that is, was a very challenging and a very difficult uh, difficult decision because again they had jobs and they were thriving at their jobs presumably presumably and so now they've got to figure this out and well for many families the driver of that decision may have been economics in terms of between the partners okay you know who makes the most money and whomever makes the most money then that person will remain in the workplace and the other person will return home in order to oversee you know, all of the activities uh, at home. Now, for some women, however, if the decision wasn't driven by finances, it may have been driven by social conventions, mm-hmm. right? And the social conventions may have included things like, well, you're the mom. And as the mom, the expectation is that you oversee everything that goes on. And so the pandemic, I mean, my gosh, created uh, such challenges for some women, particularly those who were dismissed or those who had to return to the home in order to supervise and oversee children who are now being taught online. And so that's a very difficult space in terms of, of where we were. And it hasn't, it has, the, the pandemic has created another scenario as well. In that, I'm not quite sure we can say we're out of the pandemic already, but what we're seeing, and we've talked about this, is the she session, right? And the she, she session is kind of similar in that women are now working inside of the home because, again, they may have children to care for. And as a result of being in this position, their opportunities uh, are limited. And they're now thinking about, all right, when I can return to work, what might that look like for me? Okay. And so with this she session, I think this is a prime opportunity for organizations to think about their culture and think about inclusion. Because one of the studies indicated that, you know, uh, the women were saying, hey, if I'm going back to work, if I'm going to return to the workplace, there are a couple of things that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about childcare, right? I'm concerned about wages. Am I being, you know, paid uh, fairly? Yeah. I'm concerned about health care. Do I have access to health insurance? 
And so even though this is coming on the heels of the pandemic, it is essential for smart organizations to say, wait a minute, you know, we've lost quite a few women because of the pandemic. And what, what is it that we need to do in order to get them to return to the workplace? And what do we do to create a workplace where they can thrive? One other study that I looked at that was released not too long ago, maybe last month, and it was by Deloitte. And this was interesting. I have here something. Let me share it with you. The study said that women, more than half of the women that participated in the study, okay, more than half of them are now reporting more stress and more burnout in comparison to a year ago. Wow. Again, remember, a year ago, we were in the throes of the pandemic, right? So over half of the women that participated in the study said, hey, they're more stressed out there, uh, burning out uh, more quickly. The other fascinating thing was that for managerial women, they discovered that, or it was reported that these women are more concerned about their uh, opportunities to return to the workplace and they're also concerned about how long they're going to remain in the workplace, suggesting that they may not remain in the workplace no more with their current employer, no more than a year or two. So this is in comparison to a year ago. To me, that suggests, right, there are issues. There are yeah. issues. And clearly, organizations, companies need to do a lot more to address these challenges that uh, working people face. Because again, it's not just a women, women's issue or a woman's issue, right? So I think that's, that's one of the, the biggest issues in terms of thinking about the pandemic and the effect. So we have this, the she session, but we also in tandem have the, the great resignation. Mm -hmm. That's occurring, right? And with the great resignation, we've got people who are now saying to themselves, I'm not quite sure I want to return to that work environment. I've been working at home for the last two years, or I have some semblance of working at home for the last two years. And perhaps I want to do something different, right? Perhaps I want to take advantage of other opportunities. Perhaps I want to work in an environment where I'm feeling valued and respected. Perhaps I want more flexibility because I now see that, guess what? I can work from home. I can be just as productive. So I want a similar experience. So we've got these two events, the great resignation and the sheet session that have occurred here lately as a result of the pandemic. So from my perspective, this is a monumental period for organizations to press pause, right? And to kind of figure out what do we need to do or what are we currently doing, first of all, to increase the likelihood that all of our employees are thriving and that they're able to bring uh, top-notch performance to our organization.
That's the first question. It's, it's tough because as you say, it feels like the pandemic and its aftermath were in many ways a huge opportunity for organizations to improve their culture and improve the worker experience. And I, a lot of that is connected to, as you say, flexibility and greater a sense that we can be more nimble and flexible in terms of hours. But what do you say about industries like my own, like theater, that can't really have the same flexibility? Or even you think of like, I'm sure some financial firms would argue that the same flexibility is not possible. Do you think then it's just a like, throw our hands up, that's all we can do? Or what what can industries that have to have sort of regimented you're here at this time, what can they do to improve the female experience, do you think? Um, That's a good question, because despite constraints of a particular industry, if there was genuine interest in trying to figure out alternatives, well, you could come up with alternatives, okay? And again, that's my opinion. But you have to think about, and, and that's the first thing, think about and talk to your employees, right? So first and foremost, as I was saying, the senior leadership team has to be genuine with respect to becoming aware of the situation. And they have to genuinely want to enact change if change is required. That's the first step. Because far too many organizations either ignore the issue or they play lip service, right, to the issue in terms of challenges that workers are confronting because they they just don't want to deal with it. And so I think that's the first step in terms of thinking about, yeah, well, you know, in the financial services uh, industry or in uh, theater, yeah, what what are the issues? What are the concerns of our employees? So they'd be surprised, right, to learn what some of the challenges are. And so once you understand your workers' needs, then you begin to look at practices and policies and approaches to help reduce some of those challenges, right? One of the other things we start thinking about kind of in in the theater world, right, the marginalization that has occurred in the theater world. You've got to ask, okay, huh, so why, why do we have this historic marginalization? Well, we have to recognize and accept the fact that historically, you know, who was involved in theater in terms of directing and financing and producing shows, right? Well, unfortunately, white males have been in that arena for uh, quite some time, okay? And so the question becomes, is there an interest in being more inclusive? And if there's an interest in being uh, more inclusive, what does that look like? Well, that means that there has to be additional opportunity for women and uh, people of color. Now, we've got to recognize that there may be some scarcity of, of resources, right? It may not be yeah. You know, a matter of, okay, we can snap our fingers and, you know, we can change it, wave a magic wand, it's done overnight. Well, no, it's going to take some time. However, we have to start thinking about how do we connect with, how do we plug into either women or people of color who are writers, who are producers, who may be financially backing uh, a production. And that's one way to get started. The other thing is that 
there has to be some risk taking involved, right? And you have to have more people stepping up to say, you know, well, we've never done this before. We've never had an ensemble that has 50% women in it or an ensemble that has had 50% women and uh, diversity in it. And we're looking for that kind of project, right? And so somebody has to step up and take the risk in order to try to move the needle a little bit more. So this whole notion of, of being a trailblazer is important. And that's, that's bizarre to, to talk about being a trailblazer in theater in 2022, right? It's just, it, it's just amazing to me. It's However, it, but the statistics, I mean, and, and something else I wanna talk about it's, it, and I think this is true of many industries, and we've talked about this glass escalator effect in industries where you think that you assume that the majority of leadership would be women or even other marginalized people because it's an industry that you associate with women for better or for worse. I mean, we can get into a whole conversation about like the politics of whether we can say something is feminine or masculine or whatever it is, but the fact is that people do still associate nonprofit, education, the arts, et cetera, with women, whereas like finance, STEM, as you say, with men. But it's this glass escalator effect where the stats show that there may be tons of women working at the lower levels of these industries. And then when it comes to the top, the top is somehow still populated by white men, as you say. So is the answer to that, I mean, some people's answer to that, it's been interesting as I've been doing my interviews for your class, some people's answer to that is like, well, just wait long enough and those people will sort of die off and the new generation is clearly all composed of mostly women and people of color and people from other diverse backgrounds, or is the answer, we gotta take action now? I mean, what do you think about that question? And that that's kind of uh, amusing because I would say about 15 years ago, 15, 17 years ago, I thought, okay, we just need a little time. The dinosaurs will leave and then things will open up. There will be comparable opportunities for women and people of color in the corporate world, right? Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward about 15 years, and there hasn't been a ton of movement. So I think you are spot on in terms of recognizing that, yeah, there has to be action. There has to be intentionality, right? Because again, we think about theater, there has to be a concerted effort. And again, very simple things increasing the number of roles, increasing you know, the number of speaking parts, increasing the number of directors and producers. Now, here's the flip side of that. Again, I think we both want the same thing to see uh, greater inclusion, but then we have to be mindful of what tends to happen because when women begin to have these opportunities and they're elevated in these positions, what tends to happen is the performance bar raises, right? 
And so now there is, you know, additional pressure, the bar has been raised, and then failure isn't an option because the margin of error is going to be very, very limited. And from our discussions, you know that oftentimes she's going to represent not just herself, but whatever group she's also representing, right? that she identifies with will be represented as well, okay? So that's challenging too. And the other piece of that is, you know, if there is a hiccup or a problem, it's going to be very difficult to rebound from because you are one of so few. Nonetheless, there still needs to be a concerted effort to move things forward to bring this to the forefront. If you're talking about the arts, recognizing that, wait a minute, right? Here is a phenomenal opportunity to think about shows and exhibits and to think if we're talking about films that can communicate and articulate incredible messages maybe around inclusivity, right? as well as something that's entertainment. So the power is there to communicate so many values. And one of the values could be the role of women and women's significance and their importance. And this can be done through the stories that are told, right? What was I was looking at something. I can't remember the publication, but it was talking about museums Mm. and Amongst the three most widely visited museums in the world, the British, the Louvre, and the Met, I want to say, in their history, they've never had a woman director. Mm -hmm. Ever. And some go back to, what, 1700s? Yeah. That's unfathomable, right? How can that be? And so, yeah, I, I think if you if we've given it that much time and we haven't seen any movement, it's time to have a more concerted uh, effort, right? It has to be a very pointed effort to move the needle on these things. The other thing is that, as you mentioned, mentioned the the challenge, particularly when we talk about productions. Right, the challenge that uh, women encounter with respect to their salaries, right? And historically, especially in New York, from what I've read, salaries are abysmal and they are not in step with their male counterparts. So again, that's a pretty easy fix in terms of, okay, how do we communicate the value and and the desire to be inclusive and fair? Well, that's a pretty easy fix to address. The other thing I think I saw was that in terms of New York productions, with respect to Broadway shows, that less than half of the jobs, a significant portion, a significant amount of jobs, less than 50% are being held by women in New York, both on Broadway and off Broadway. Okay. So 
these productions, you know, folks have to step up because when you're finding that less than 50% of the productions in New York on and off Broadway have women in them, that's a light bulb moment, right? And a conversation or conversations need to be had. So you're probably saying, okay, so who needs to have those conversations, right? Well, that's the question. That's what I was going to say because, and I think this can be true across industries, but just the industry that I know, you know, you emphasize so much the scene, it needs to start at the top. It needs to start with the senior leadership team. But I think in a business that can feel so decentralized, we're having the conversation. And this is true about, you know, other types of diversity too. We've talked a lot about racism in the theater and it sometimes can feel as if everyone's having the conversation, but because there aren't any clear leaders in the industry, mm-hmm. no one is stepping up. It's like everyone's playing a game of what's that game? Like freeze tag, like waiting to see who will move first and then the rest will come. And this is probably true in many other industries as well, but it seems extremely counterproductive because nothing is going to get done that way, right? As you say, you need that one trailblazer, but there just aren't, even in the pandemic when, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, when the industry was trying to lobby for for bailout money because everything had shut down, Jesse Green wrote this amazing article in the Times that was like, where is our leadership? Where is the theater leadership who can advocate the government for this industry? And it's kind of the Broadway league, but they're not really doing it. So I think it, you know, a lot of it comes down to a lack of centrality or leadership within the industry as a whole. And, and that's where you start, right? You try to figure out who are the influential players, mm-hmm. right? Uh, maybe the financiers, maybe producers, yeah. directors, and amongst them, who, who is sensitive to this issue? Yeah. Because it only takes one courageous, and I don't, well, I guess we could call it courageous, but one courageous person to step up to say, you know, we see that there are disparities and we need to work on them. Now, again, there may be some fear because they may believe, and, and this may be part of the, the reluctance, right? Because there may be the belief that things will need to change immediately. But with this kind of issue, it's a sustained issue. First, you've got to recognize there, there's a problem, right? Then you've got to figure out, okay, what is the breadth and depth of the problem, right? What does it look like? And then systematically designing strategies and, and approaches to reduce and or eliminate the problem. I want to say at Salesforce com- uh, company, their le- senior leadership team recognizes, now been a couple of years, but they recognized that there were pay inequities in the company, right? And so instead of trying to sweep it under the rug, instead of trying to ex- explain it away, they said, wait a minute, time out. Let's do a deep dive to figure out what's going on. And so they run their analyses and they discover absolutely there were inequities in place. 
And so the senior leadership team had the wherewithal to then say, we're going to step up and make this right. Some, you know, hail that as being, you know, courageous and incredible and amazing. Well, I mean, I'm not quite sure I'd use it, but, but God bless them for doing it because yeah. we could probably point to 10 other organizations that would turn a blind eye or sweep it under the rug and not acknowledge it. And the senior leadership team was very focal. They were, they were vocal in saying, whoa, I don't know, you know, how did this happen? We need to check our systems. We need to make sure that we're in step because first and foremost, we want our employees to feel valued, respected, and that we have created an environment where everybody can thrive. It's not rocket science. So yeah, going back to the theater world, and I know, you know, they, they're a special uh, breed, right? A little bit different, kind of quirky sometimes, <laughs> uh, but, but that's okay, that's okay. I mean, we all have our own quirks, but you start looking at those who have the influence, right? And that's the key thing. Someone who has the influence, someone who can get others to open their eyes and then begin to look at small things that can be done in order to facilitate change. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think, you know, it connects back to what you said earlier about the the great resignation too, because, and I think I mentioned this in class once, I think the prevailing attitude, especially in the arts used to be, and I think this is starting to change, which will maybe benefit women, but used to be, I'm just so lucky to be here. I'll say yes to anything because a million, just like the devil wears Prada, a million other girls would have killed for this role. Mm -hmm. And I think as you allude, that's, dangerous that the thinking should actually be in order to make pr progress and to make change the thinking should actually be on the part of the company we're so lucky to have you what can we do to make you more productive and to make your experience better and to make you thrive and successful and i don't think the arts has it's such a scarcity mindset as you say i don't think they've flipped that on its head yet i'm also glad you brought up and we've talked a bit about this but i think one of the failures in the past of the, of these types of discussions has been that it hasn't been intersectional, that people are bringing their whole identities to the fore and you can't really separate, oh, like I'm a woman, but I'm also this, I'm also this. Are you feeling optimistic about the level of intersectionality with which people are engaging with this topic now, or do you think there's more to go? Oh, I, I think we definitely uh, need to continue along this vein because this is an area where, you know, people uh, have felt uncomfortable. And so those that have these intersectionalities haven't brought their, may have not brought their full selves to the workplace, hmm. right? And so like any other individual that has an intersectional component, I think it's critical for us to continue to recognize and appreciate, right, these intersectionalities because we want people to bring their full 
themselves to the workplace. And so the other thing in terms of following up on, on your observation that, yeah, we want people to be able to thrive and we want people to bring their full selves to the workplace, because guess what? If they can thrive, if they're bringing their full selves, if they're feeling valued and respected, then they're going to excel at what they do. And if they excel at what they do, guess what? The company is going to benefit from that, right? So even if um, the senior leadership team is um, not interested in doing the right thing, if they look at it from a very selfish perspective, and some would argue that that's akin to kind of the business case, in terms of, okay, I may not really be concerned about righting these wrongs and creating an environment where there's fairness and inclusion and equity. I may think that is unimportant. However, when we can connect those dots and we can find that when there is fairness, inclusion, equity, people can bring their full selves, people can thrive in organizations, and we can then discover that it benefits the company, then that should light a fire under people, right? Because the organization as a whole performs much better. And there is study after study after study that supports this business case argument. Although, you know, I tend to be a little more altruistic thinking, you just do it because it's the right thing to do. But I have to realize not everyone has rose-colored glasses like I have, right? And so you have to focus more on the bottom line. Yeah, I think it's, I loved reading those studies in class because I think you're right that so often you say like, well, it's the right thing to do, but it's not always, that's not always convincing enough to people in business. I think, unfortunately, it's it's a long game perspective that not many people are able to see well enough. Like, not only is there an altruistic perspective, but even saying like, oh, this will ultimately benefit the company because diverse perspectives lead to better business choices and employees that thrive and feel that they can succeed do better work. It's a, it's a long game perspective that not a lot of people have. I think a lot of people are living, you know, short term day to day. And so it's also a trick to get them to see more long term. But certainly senior, senior leadership at any organization should be thinking long term, no matter what I would think. They too are guilty of the quick fix, right? Yeah. Or, or short-term thinking with respect to, to many issues, because again, they uh, oftentimes senior leadership team members are concerned about their impact on the firm. What can they identify as a beneficial effect that under their leadership? Deliverables, yeah. Exactly. And so for some, again, it's a matter of, do I want to tackle this inclusion issue? Do I want to tackle this pay gap issue? Because, you know, that may sully my image, my reputation, right? And I'm going for some short-term wins versus thinking about something that's a little more thorny 
and it's going to take a little more time, energy, and effort. Yeah. So as someone who studies all of these things all of the time and teaches classes on it and reads about it, have you been feeling optimistic? It's a big question. Have you been feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the future of women's leadership? Oh, I have to be optimistic. Oh my gosh, Kate, <laughs> there's, there's no other way. Yeah. And especially, you know, every uh, semester when I teach the women in business leadership class, I get, I get in, in energized, right? I get enthusiastic because I oftentimes see light bulbs go off, right? Mm. The students' heads, and not, not just the women, but when I have male students as well. And that means that at the very least, a seed was planted, right? Or at the very least, students are thinking, hmm, this is interesting. And then hopefully they will then carry that over in terms of thinking about their behavior, their perceptions, how they engage with people in the workplace. Because again, you guys are the next generation and I'm stubborn. I'm thinking at some point we will break this chain of consistent, overwhelmingly consistent attitude and perspective about who has access to leadership opportunities, power, and authority. I, I just have to be optimistic that you guys will usher in another wave of change. And, you know, it was, as I said, it was just amazing that I thought that this would happen quite some time ago. And then maybe 10 years ago, I thought, okay, fine. Maybe now we're going to see a shift because more guys have witnessed either their moms being in business or their sisters, you know, working in organizations, or maybe they have a significant other that's working in an organization that may sensitize them a little bit more. And again, not all guys need uh, to be sensitized, but some of them do. And so my thought was that, okay, once they've had this additional exposure, perhaps then we'll begin to see more of a shift. And that has happened because uh, there are indeed male allies. And male out there, they are essential. They are critical to this issue. Because like we were just saying, men still have the lion's share of power, right? decision-making authority in organizations. So we need to have them on board. And some of them are on board, which is great. Yes. Yeah. Because we can't do it. We, it just cannot be, you know, girls only, right? <laughs> this thing will, it, it will take an eternity almost for us to be able to move this on our own in a significant way. Now, again, changes have been incremental thus far, but I think it would continue to be glacial if women were the only advocates for notions of inclusion and trying to figure out, you know, how do we create parity in organizations? We've got to have guys in the fight as well. We've, we talked in class 
a lot about the role of female mentorship and women who are currently leaders. What is their responsibility to cultivate future female leaders? And we talked a lot about the pluses and minuses of that. I assume you come down, I don't want to make assumptions about you, but I assume you come down on the side that we need the female, men, just as we need the guys, as you say, to, to be on our team. Mm -hmm. so we need the mentorship as well in order to rise. Is that where you come down on that issue? 125%, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But I, I, I'm glad you also recognize that, yeah, guys bring something valuable to the table too. But I think it is even more incumbent on women to try to reach out and assist and mentor uh, younger women. Absolutely. Do you have any advice for any wannabe female leaders who may be listening right now? Oh, of course I have advice. First and foremost, it's important to know who you are. Get to your authentic self. Get to know your authentic self as quickly as possible. Because, you know, we've had conversations about this, yeah? That, you know, some women may be reluctant or hesitant to engage in a leadership capacity because they're uncertain about who they are and how they should behave and what kind of de demeanor they need to demonstrate in the workplace. So first and foremost, be comfortable in your own skin. That's the first thing. Second thing, make sure that you are top-notch, first-rate at what you do. And we just talked a little bit about this, right? In that you are bringing something unique to the table, right? That's the third thing. But that's gonna be linked to your excellence because not only are you gonna bring your excellence, your expertise, in your uh, area of study or whatever it is that you do well, whether it's you know uh, marketing or whether it's accounting, whatever it is, you have to be first rate at it, okay? And so then the other piece is to recognize that in many instances, your mere presence provides a unique opportunity mm. because at far too many tables, right? there isn't a great deal of diversity. So instead of being anxious about being, right, the only X, whatever X is, the only woman at the table, the only woman of color at the table, whatever it may be, right, it's a unique opportunity to lend your voice. So that those are key things that I think women should embrace. I totally agree. I mean, I think they're, it's obviously easier said than done because learning to bring your authentic self, I mean, people enter the workplace, you know, sometimes at 18, often at 21, 22, and how can they even know what their authentic selves are yet? But I think you have to commit to whatever your authentic self is in that moment and try to bring it to the workplace. And recognize that it is going to evolve, right? Yeah. Again, I'm sure both of us could look back and say, wow, you know, five years ago. Oh, absolutely. Was, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> In terms of where I was five years ago, my attitudes, my thought process, my perspective, 
hopefully there's there's growth, you know, and the growth should occur not in five year increments, it should occur regularly. And so as you undergo that process, you continue to recognize and be in touch with and be okay with who you are. Yes. Because you're the only you. And that's what you leverage. Absolutely. Right? And that's what Absolutely. you bring to the table. And will, as you alluded to, probably distinguish you from that guy over there or, or that woman over there, whoever, whoever it may be. But yes, I completely agree. This has been such an amazing discussion. I want to end with a, the ending segment that I always do on my show, which is called the thank you five segment. If you're not familiar when doing a show before in, in time increments, before you, the curtain goes up before the show starts, your stage manager says 10 minutes to show time. And then you say, thank you, 10. And the last one you get before places is five minutes. Thank you, five, which is to acknowledge that everyone's heard it so that everyone's ready. So that's the, that's the explanation behind it. But on the show, it's just five rapid fire questions. So just answer off the top of your head and you can always not answer if you don't want to, but I think these will be fun and also informative. So first... What is one change you would hope to see in most workplaces that you think would benefit women? Acceptance. Meaning, can I elaborate? Please (laughs) elaborate. No, please elaborate. Okay, yeah, acceptance in terms of recognizing that we all bring something different to the table. And so accepting the fact that I am a woman, right? And whatever other intersectionalities that I have, accept that and don't automatically devalue it, right? Because it is more than likely unlike yourself. Hmm. I love that. Next. What do you think makes a good female leader? And do you think those words are different from what makes a good male leader? Oh, that's a good one. I think that there are some consistencies in terms of characteristics that make a good leader, regardless Mm. of whether they're male or female. And and those those are things like the ability to perform, obviously, the the ability to communicate, the ability to have empathy, having interpersonal skills, rallying a team around a team or department, division, whatever it may be, around a task or a goal. Again, those are common elements associated with leadership, right? Mobilizing people, getting them to... Uh, perform at their best, getting them to understand what the strategic direction is, what the goals are, what the objectives are. Any leader or all leaders are tasked with doing that. Now, the issue becomes how that is received, whether it's being done by a, a man or a woman, right? Or people who identify as male or female. And so, For women, there are greater challenges in terms of how you go about accomplishing those goals or demonstrating those behaviors. 
purpose, right? Because we got to be aware of the social construction with respect to how are most people, how will most people be inclined to perceive a female leader, all right? Despite those perceptions, I still have to figure out how to mobilize a group, how to clearly articulate what our strategies, our goals, and our objectives are. I still have to make sure that the company, the department, the division performs. Mm -hmm. So I just have a a little more to attune to, but the, the tasks and the goals of a leader are the same. How we go about doing it may be slightly different. I love that. I mean, yes, I totally agree that a lot of it comes down to perception, as you say. So the leader, there shouldn't be a difference between a female leader or a male leader, but because perception may be so different, people have to change their strategies. Next, what is one way you can think of that we could work to make these conversations more intersectional than they already are? Bring others to the table. You've got to have full-fledged representation and you've got to be willing to listen and hear the perspectives of others, the experiences that others have and the challenges that others encounter. So we've got to kind of get out of ourselves and not be as focused on me, 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 which is difficult, right? Very difficult, (laughs) but it's essential. Because until I can have empathy and have a better appreciation or at least a way, I may not even appreciate, hopefully I do, but at least a better awareness of the experience of someone else. I think that assists this issue. Completely agree. And lastly, a fun one. We had to watch The Devil Wears Prada for class, which sounds silly, but was actually super illuminating about women's leadership styles and their relationships with one another in a workplace. But on that subject, we've talked about content in class. Do you have any other favorite pieces of entertainment that you think speak to the issues that we've been discussing today? Oh, absolutely. On a variety of levels, we've been talking about the crown Mm -hmm. and the dynamics there in terms of the women, particularly I found it very moving between the queen and the prime minister, right? Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Again, here we have two powerful women. So for me, that was incredibly uh, insightful and just uh, amazing to watch. Again, I know it's somewhat fictional, maybe somewhat, but again, those dynamics being portrayed were phenomenal. Okay. What else? Oh, I know, yeah, uh, many of you gave it two thumbs down, but Emily in Paris has some interesting dynamics as well. Now, in in the dynamics, give us another layer because not only are we looking at uh, leadership, because when we're thinking about the leadership of the the woman in France, her her name was Sophie, I wanna say, we also have this additional layer of culture, Hmm. right? Uh, because we didn't talk about this much at all. But when we think about leadership and we think about leadership dynamics, they can change based on culture. So leadership uh, challenges that 
a woman in Japan may encounter versus, you know, a woman in France versus a woman in Brazil may encounter, it's very illuminating because not only do we see these issues and challenges here in the United States, but it's global. Right. So for the, so that's a whole other way that I enjoy watching for Emily in Paris. And of course, just the, the fashion sense too was pretty interesting because the other things that, of course, you had Emily who was a 20 something, and then you had the, the business owner who was probably 40, 50 something. So to, to see that dynamic as well, in terms of how women are represented was very fascinating uh, to watch. And of course we talked about Downton Abbey, right? Of course. <laughs> yes. So again, those dynamics of, of women and just the conventions and the pressures that they were under during that period of time. Well, I can go on and on, Katie. I don't know how much you want me to. No, no, that's <laughs> perfect. I mean, as we discussed in class, I just think it's, and you mentioned before, important to note that the media we consume, whether they know it or not, have has things to say about this very topic and can make a real impact on how we see ourselves and how we see our coworkers and our bosses and things like that. So I think it's a fun question, but as you say, also can be a, a more serious intellectual exercise as well. Well, I didn't mean to make it intellectual. <laughs> and I just thought about a scandal, right? Love scandal. OMG. And again, going back to this takes me back to some of the discussion and debate and venom that was targeted uh, toward that show is amazing. Was there? Yeah. Saying what? That she was like evil or something? Well, she was evil. And here we have like a 21st century role, but the dynamics for the African-American female lead were still so stereotypical, right? She, you know, is having an affair and right. And so, yeah, so there were a lot of of really interesting Oh yeah, surrounding that show. So yeah, I could probably point to five others, but I'll stop. <laughs> well, maybe your next your next paper, which I'm sure all our listeners will read, maybe your next paper will be on Scandal and Downton Abbey and The Crown and Emily in Paris. And I can't wait to read how you connect them all together. Is there anything you've, I mean, I could talk for ages to you about all this, all these issues. And I feel like we've covered a lot, but is there anything that you want to mention or say Feel like we missed in the discussion? No, I just want to emphasize that while this work can be daunting in terms of moving the needle, it can be done. It's not rocket science. And senior leadership teams just need to be thoughtful and mindful and not have a knee-jerk reaction in terms of trying to get on board with the movement of the moment. This is this this issue in terms of inclusion and parity has been with us for quite some time. And clearly, you know, we haven't resolved it yet. But I think with intentionality and I think with more focus and senior leadership team members taking more time to think about their individual organizations and how to become more aware 
of what their employees need and what their current culture depicts and the current practices and policies in place, once those things are done, we can begin to see more progress. And men and women alike can get on board and to support this endeavor. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think if there's one takeaway I have from the class or even our discussion, it's that it requires you know, some big picture, long-term thinking at first from the senior leadership team. And then, so it's not, so it doesn't seem like this huge endeavor that can never be done. And then small bite-sized tangible approaches. What can we do in the here and now, now that we've thought big picture? So I completely agree. And as you say, I mean, wanting parity or fairness or wanting your employees to thrive is a universal issue. It's not just a women's issue or, or a women of color issue or whoever it may be. It's an everyone issue. So everyone Absolutely. should be invested. And it's, and it's applicable to theater as well, especially now. I think now is a prime opportunity for the players in theater to rethink what is going to be shared with audiences, right? Because we've got so much pent up demand. People have been, right, away from the theater for so long and they're eager to get back. And so we just need creative types, risk takers, those that feel that they can showcase a variety of experiences on stage to get the gumption to do it. Absolutely. And it's in theater specifically, it's a two-pronged approach, right? Because it's about the content that we put out there. What shows are we doing? Who are we casting in the shows? But it's also about who's working behind the scenes, who's making it happen. So you may have a show like Hamilton, but it may be an entirely white producing team. Not saying that's bad, I love Hamilton, but these are the discussions that people are starting to have and to study where where we're making progress in these in these terms. And I think it has to be both. But yes, you're absolutely right. And you know, I think theater is is ahead of many industries, but as we talked about throughout, it's not the exception to the rule. It still has a far a long way to go. Thank you so much, Professor Jones. It's really been a pleasure. I could talk to you all day. I know, thank you. No, this has been delightful because you know, I was a little apprehensive thinking, oh boy, <laughs> uh, but you assured me that yeah, it would be a conversation and it would just be uh, delightful for both of us. And it has been exactly that. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you call time listeners as always. Um, it's been a pleasure to do this episode. One I've re- I feel really passionately about. And if anyone wants to, hear more about the research or have any discussions, contact me anywhere. And our next episode I'm really excited about as well. So stay tuned for that and have a good week.